Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Engine 14, rescue 14. Engine 14, rescue 14. It's going to be the flying jet, 9911 Avalon Road Northwest. It's going to be in reference to a 45-year-old male, sinkable episode, 31 Delta 1. For engine 14, rescue 14. At the flying J, 9911 Avalon Road Northwest, 31 Delta 1. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AFR podcast. I'm joined once again by Dr. Pruitt. Good to see you again, Doc. Good to see you, Captain West. <laughs> Glad to be back. I, it's been, we've been away from this for a little bit. Yes. Welcome back. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to be going over syncope. And this is a pretty common call, although it's not always a uh, full syncope. A lot of times we get out, called out for uh, near syncope, they'll say. So what's the difference between the two and uh, what do we need to know about syncope? Okay. Well, technically syncope is defined as a complete loss of postural tone, which in layperson terms would be somebody fainted, right? Um, Pre-syncope would be someone who says, well, I was feeling lightheaded and dizzy like I was going to faint. So technically syncope is the person who does lose consciousness briefly. Pre-syncope is the one who feels like they might lose consciousness. Okay. And I'm sure everybody out there has maybe felt this way before themselves. So it's always good to lean back on your own personal experience to try to, you know, do some more learning. So a couple times when I've gone on like a real hard run, I felt lightheaded or where I had to like sit down, I thought I might uh, pass out. Or if you're lifting weights, sometimes you can do like real heavy weight. And then as soon as you get done with it, you feel like you're about to pass out. Exactly. Um, Syncope is all about the brain wanting more blood flow and it does everything it can do to use gravity to its advantage to get that person horizontal and restore blood flow. So there's lots of reasons that cardiac output might not be getting enough blood to the brain, but for instance, like after a run, maybe it's due to dehydration, overexertion. Um, I really love your example of the the weightlifting, the lifting heavy weights. Yeah, there's some videos out there. If you haven't seen them of somebody deadlifting like 800 pounds and they, as soon as they put it down, they just fall straight on their face. Do you, know, do you have any idea why that happens? Nope, not okay. really. Well, one of the most common reasons for syncope in young people is actually, it's called vasovagal syncope. And your vagus nerve is one of the major cranial nerves in your brain that regulates your your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest, kind of slows everything down, um, slows your heart rate, slows your blood pressure, lowers your blood pressure. Um, Well, if you think about it, when we have our patients, say they're in SVT, what do we have them do before we give them medication? All right, yeah, vagal maneuver. Yeah, vagal maneuver. So they they vagal, they bear down, they um, increase their intrathoracic pressure, and that's going to increase the stimulation of their vagus nerve to slow their heart down. Well, essentially, when you're lifting heavy weights, it's the exact same process. They're vagaling, just like we would in SVT. Only problem is, at that point, they're not needing to slow their heart rate down. They slow it too much, and then they have a syncopal episode. That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy how that works. Uh, one other personal example I had, uh, when I was in the military, we did a lot of like 
I don't know, water work and stuff. And uh, it was pretty much like voluntary uh, waterboarding. But a couple times people would go unconscious and um, we would call it meeting the wizard. But what's happening there if you're if you're going unconscious or you have like an underwater syncopal episode, what do you think's happening in the body at that time? I can't believe they get away with doing this stuff to you guys. Um, however, I think it's probably a combination of a couple things. Most likely, if you're underwater and not able to breathe, it's likely due to hypoxia, which would be an oxygen delivery problem to the brain. And the next is as you're not breathing, um, there's a buildup of carbon dioxide too, which um, can also cause some changes in the, the blood supply to the brain as well that would cause someone to pass out. Okay, and then some other ones that we have all probably seen, so somebody getting stuck with a needle, what's happening with that? Um, same thing, uh, there's a reflex as they, as you'll see it typically, again, in young people, this vasovagal syncope, where it can happen in an extremely fearful situation, like somebody sees a spider, somebody sees a needle. Um, Sometimes it happens not that infrequently when people are urinating. It's called micturition syncope, but it's overstimulation of that vagus nerve um, that leads to a slowing of the heart rate, a decrease in blood delivery, and then ultimately to the person passing out. Wow. And you are a uh, Air Force Academy graduate, so I'm sure you've seen this a couple times, but if somebody's standing in a formation for a long time, every once in a while somebody will just collapse in the middle of these formations and nobody helps them out because they're not allowed to move. <laughs> that did happen fairly frequently. Um, yes, I would say a lot of that is just due to standing in one place too long. Frequently the cadets, at least at the academy, were a little on the dehydrated side as well. Alrighty, so you have it broken out. Um, let's see. If we show up to these calls, we'll have a description of what happened. And sometimes it's, you know, just with the verbal description, it's hard to get a good picture of what was going on. But a lot of times with this syncopal episode, there'll be some description of like some shaking going on. And it's confusing sometimes whether this was a seizure or a syncopal episode. So are the two similar and and how are we going to tell what's happening on these that's an excellent question um it can be pretty difficult to tell sometimes this is where your history taking is going to be really important the questions that you ask the patient about what happened before the episode and then ask the bystanders what it was like after the episode was over um, things in your history that might help. With syncope, a lot of times there tends to be something called a prodrome where the patient will describe, I felt lightheaded, I felt dizzy, I felt nauseated and sweaty and clammy. Those things usually will be described by a patient with syncope, whereas a seizure usually comes out of the blue. There are patients with seizures that have like an aura before, but that aura is usually different than the pre-syncopal things I just described. Um, so your history is important, asking how they felt before. And then um, afterwards, typically your seizure patients, as, as you all know, you see this pretty frequently in the field, they'll be postictal. So it takes several minutes, sometimes up to 10 or 15 minutes to get them completely back to baseline. Whereas with syncope, there's usually a pretty immediate recovery of consciousness. And what about the amount of shaking involved? With a syncopal episode, is there just maybe some twitching going on for 
a shorter period of time than say uh, than a seizure? Yeah, so both of these entities can definitely have some um, twitching or abnormal muscle movements, and that's the brain's response to not getting enough oxygen. So it's hard to tell just by the movements themselves whether or not it's a seizure. Okay, and you like to break down the the causes behind syncopal episodes. You have it broken down into um, issues with the head, heart, lungs, the blood, or blood volume. So we're gonna go through these five different causes of syncope, and if you could just talk about um, some common things that you've seen for each of them. Sure thing. All right, so we'll start with the head. What are some things going on in the head that could be a cause for syncope? When I think about a patient with syncope and I'm thinking about intracranial problems, the biggest and most dangerous thing I would be concerned about would be a stroke. Strokes can be incredibly deceptive. They're not always the big bad strokes where you see the facial droop and the left-sided, one-sided weakness. Um, there can be strokes in the, we call it the posterior circulation of the brain, so the smaller vessels that come off the subclavian arteries into the vertebral arteries that feed the brainstem. And posterior stroke in particular, I remember five Ds. So there's drop attacks, which is where syncope is important here. If you're having a patient with drop attacks, these next four Ds are always questions I ask. I ask about dysarthria, are you having any trouble speaking? Dysphagia, are you having any trouble swallowing? Diplopia, are you having any double vision? And dystaxia, are you having any trouble with balance? And those are things that sometimes, unless you ask about them, patients don't even realize they're having trouble with them. So difficulty swallowing or speaking, sometimes it can be really subtle. Whereas, so you can catch a posterior stroke because the drop attacks are not so subtle, right? Yeah, so drop attacks, it's, it's, it's basically just an easy D to go with the other four Ds. Um, it just so means like, syncope. Okay, so falling yeah. or going unconscious. Falling, a sudden, sudden loss of consciousness. Okay, um, doesn't start with the D. So. Yeah, so drop attack is the easy D there. But yeah, so if you can catch a stroke on a patient that's having syncopal episodes, that's a really big deal. Okay. Um, Moving on to the heart, I would think that this is probably uh, one of the most common reasons. Can you talk about some of the problems with the heart that would cause a syncopal episode? Absolutely, I totally agree. This is another, it's up there with stroke in terms of dangerous things that could cause syncope. Sometimes um, the heart can go into different electrical rhythms that can be dangerous. And everything with cardiac output is dependent on the volume of blood that's delivered with every beat and also that's called the stroke volume and then the heart rate. And so that's what delivers blood to the rest of the body and if there's any change in the heart rate or the stroke volume, then that's gonna decrease the cardiac output. So things like bradycardia, ventricular tachycardia, any sort of interruption in the beating of the heart that is long enough to interrupt blood flow to the head can be dangerous. And these things are kind of insidious because they can come and go. And so it's very important to keep these patients on the monitor and see if you catch these episodes because they might only have six or 10 beats of VTAC, but during that six or 10 beats, there's no blood flow going to the head and then they might just pop right back out of it. Yeah, I remember a call, um, 
this woman was having frequent near syncopal episodes and she kept going to the ER and they kept thinking it was like a psychiatric related thing. And we threw her on the monitor. As soon as we threw her on, she was, uh, she was in torsades for like just three seconds or something. My partner looked down and was like, you see that? And oh I was like, goodness. and I was talking to her. So I just glanced over and didn't completely um, catch it. And then, you know, three seconds later, she's back into normal sinus rhythm. So luckily we were able to have that captured. It, it took a little bit um, because we, we weren't doing a 12 lead at the time or anything, or we weren't actually uh, printing anything out, but we were able to get that um, to the hospital. We were able to uh, take that from our monitor, give it to AAS, and they were able to provide that to the hospital. So now they don't think she's crazy anymore. Um, and we actually had evidence of it. So, yeah. Um, that was really good. Yeah, so something like a bunch of like near syncopal episodes. It didn't happen when you were there, so you could hook them up and they look completely normal again, but you just have, have to be suspicious again of like what was the, the cause of this. Yeah, that's excellent. I'm really glad you had her on the monitor. It really probably helped with her care too. Yeah, I would think that would be frustrating, you know, going in time and time again. And, you know, she probably didn't know what was wrong with her either. But having that, being able to capture that on the monitor was valuable. Yeah. Okay. Um, you have, uh, you mentioned aortic stenosis on your PowerPoint. Um, how are we going to be able to know if somebody has that? Aortic stenosis, this is kind of a, the next step in your cardiology, but um, the aortic valve is the valve that sits on top of the left ventricle and is kind of the last step for blood to get through before it goes to the rest of the body. And in some people with high blood pressure or a calcified valve for whatever reason, that valve gets stiff and it's really hard for blood to get out of the left ventricle into the aorta, which ultimately feeds blood to the head, right? So if that valve is calcified and is not opening correctly, there's not enough blood getting out of the heart. So the aortic valve can become calcified over time, and then there's not a blood, enough blood delivery to the brain, which leads to syncope. And this is actually an important thing to look for in your patients with syncope. The easiest way to find it is if you hear a murmur. So okay. you listen over, it's on the left side of the chest, kind of about two centimeters away from the sternum on the left side, third or fourth rib space, usually you'll hear a pretty loud like whooshing noise. And that's the murmur of aortic stenosis. It's one of the easiest murmurs to hear. And why that's important is because if your patient has a history of aortic stenosis and now they're starting to have syncopal episodes, that's really indicates that their mortality is fairly high from this valvular disease and usually it means they're going to need surgery pretty quickly to replace the valve it has a really high mortality associated with it yeah yeah and i know uh, a lot of people this is not something that we do very frequently although you know if you think about every time you've gone into the doctor or you've watched a nurse assess somebody it's always they're going to listen to your lungs and they're going to listen to your heart and they just always do it the same way and you know if you make that part of your assessment you'll be able to pick up on these murmurs instead of lub dub you're going to hear a whooshing sound like you said so um it is it is something that you you might be able to catch and the more you listen to it uh, the better you'll get at it 
Yeah, and uh, as you start to listen to more hearts, you hear more normal, it's easier to pick up abnormal, but aortic stenosis is one of the easiest ones to hear. Okay, now what can happen in the lungs that can cause syncope? I think the big bag dangerous thing in the lungs would be a pulmonary embolism to think about, and that's a blood clot. Usually they travel from the legs, but sometimes they can travel from other places too. And it essentially cuts off blood flow to the lungs and decreases cardiac output and can cause a syncopal episode. Okay, and what are we gonna see in this patient? What are the signs and symptoms gonna be? What are some clues maybe? I know I, th I think there's some EKG changes that we might be able to pick up on. Yes, so your patient is typically gonna be complaining of difficulty breathing and they'll be pretty tachypnic. So they'll be breathing very fast, they'll stay their shorter breath. Sometimes there's chest pain associated with a blood clot and it tends to be what we call pleuritic, which means that they'll say it hurts when I take a deep breath. It's not so much that dull kind of pressure that people get with a heart attack, it's more of a sharp pain that gets worse with deep breath. There's risk factors that I think about, so I kind of run through these in my head when I'm talking to my patient, and sometimes I'll ask them these questions when I'm taking their history. Yeah, one is if they've ever had a blood clot before, because mm -hmm. then they're probably more prone to get more. Um, two is if they've been recently like hospitalized or immobilized for a long time. So an example would be like flying across the ocean or driving across the country where there, there's a chance for blood to just kind of pool in the legs and cause a clot and then travel to the heart. Cancer makes people very prone to clotting. So any kind of history of cancer might increase somebody's risk. And then smoking does the same thing as well as increased estrogen. So some of your highest risk patients for pulmonary embolism will be uh, your pregnant patients. They have extra estrogen around. And then younger females who might be on birth control pills or some f sort of supplemental estrogen for cycle regulation. Okay. So they'll be uh, breathing fast, you said. They're gonna maybe have some chest pain. What about like their O2 sat, any other? Um, things we're going to be able to pick up on. PEs are tricky, so of course you want to look and see if they're hypoxic, right? Because this is an oxygen delivery problem to the lungs, but they're not always hypoxic. One of the most sensitive findings in PEs is actually just sinus tachycardia, which can make it kind of hard to diagnose. Right. So you need to put it in the entire context of your, of your patient if they have the right historical risk factors, if they're painting a clinical picture of being short of breath, tachycardic. Um, All right, and what was that, uh, the EKG findings that might come up? So sometimes it's just as simple as sinus tachycardia, but what the textbook will tell you is um, S1Q3T3, and that's a S wave in lead one, and then a Q wave in lead three with an inverted T wave in lead three, and I'll have some pictures okay. of that that might make it a little All right, I'll watch, I'll watch your lecture, and <laughs> maybe I'll understand it by the end of that. <laughs> All right, so we'll move on to the blood. Now, what can be going on in the blood to cause syncope? The big one I think about um, with blood would be anemia. So you can have patients, a lot of times this can be your elderly patients who might have like an occult GI bleed. So they're taking a lot of ibuprofen for their arthritis and they've been having intermittent epigastric pain but don't think much about it. Sometimes that can cause a GI bleed and a fair amount of blood loss over time which can lead to syncopal episodes. 
Sometimes your younger females, if they're having heavy menstrual periods, might be anemic as well, or any patients who um, have a reason to be malnourished and not have enough iron in their diet could be anemic as well. All right, and the last one seems like it kind of... So volume is another important consideration too in syncope. Um, Frequently you'll see it in patients who are dehydrated. Maybe they haven't had enough water to drink or food to eat throughout the day. But another very important contribution to volume could be bleeding. We mentioned GI bleeding before, but um, another important thing to think about is a possible ruptured ectopic pregnancy in a young female of childbearing age, or even a, a AAA a aortic aneurysm that could be leaking, which could also cause blood loss and hypovolemia can lead to syncope as well. Another factor to think about when you're trying to elucidate what's going on with these patients and what might have caused their syncopal episode is medication changes. Some of the most frequent medications that we see that can lead to syncope would be beta blockers. They slow down the heart and that essentially decreases cardiac output. And so if their heart is so slow that they're not getting enough blood to the brain, that's bad and that can lead to syncope or lightheadedness or dizziness. Another couple other classes of medications that might also cause problems with volume would be Lasix. If a patient's taking a diuretic to help with their heart failure, they might be losing too much volume through their urine. And then um, Viagra or Cialis actually too causes vasodilation, decrease in vascular tone, and then decrease of blood flow to the brain. So those are important things to ask your patients about when you're trying to figure out what might be going on. Okay. And if we think it's uh, just a simple, the person's dehydrated cause their syncopal episode and we take uh, orthostatic vitals, is that a good way to determine if they're dehydrated? You'll see orthostatics in the textbook a lot. I don't tend to like them very much. I find them um, difficult to reproduce. They take a really long time and are not always that helpful. I think there's quicker ways that we have at our disposal to assess patients for dehydration. Um, Some of the things I do are look at mucous membranes. So you can look at maybe somebody's lips are chapped or their tongue is dry. In kids, you can ask if they're crying tears. Um, An easy way to check hydration status too is to pinch the skin on the back of the hand and kind of tint it up and see if it stays in the tent or if it goes right back to normal. That's called skin turgor. Um, Those are a couple of easier, faster ways, I think, to help. Um, That and just asking your patient, do your symptoms get worse when you stand up? Yeah. I think think that could answer your question just as good as taking 10 minutes of different blood pressures and different Mm, positions. Or maybe just having them stand up. Say they wanted to refuse and... You're like, okay, well, let's see how you do on your feet, you know, first. I think that's a great test, yeah. Um, and then that will show to them maybe maybe they do need to go get evaluated or they're not as good as they think. Yeah, because people just want to, they want to refuse, but they can't stand up or anything. They're just like, I'm like, yeah, you're just going to sit here for the rest of the night and not go anywhere because you can't, you can't walk or right. stand. Right. So, okay. Well, those are... Uh, I think that'll be a useful way to think about syncope now, break it up into the five five causes. So we got the head, the heart, lungs, blood, 
and volume problem. So I'm going to remember that for my future syncope calls. Do you have any closing thoughts on this topic? Closing thoughts, I'd just like to ask everybody, just remember to get those 12 leads and put those patients on the monitor because you might catch something dangerous. And then um, that's probably the biggest thing with syncope is make sure you're thinking about the big dangerous things. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Pruitt and everybody else. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on the next episode of the AFR podcast. All right. Thank you.